change makers. You see them all around you. They're in your communities, your schools, your workplace. They do powerful things and they make change happen. In this series, we interview the many change makers who built up their policy toolkits at Princeton and went on to change their communities. These are their stories. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Changemakers. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Anami Paul. Anami Paul is the leader of the Green Party of Canada. She's the first Black Canadian and first Jewish woman to be elected leader of a major federal party in the country. Anami is the daughter of immigrants who arrived in Canada from the Caribbean in the 1960s. She engaged with public policy from a very early age. At age 12, she was a page for the Ontario legislature and later served as a page for the Canadian Senate. She was the founder and executive director of the Canadian Centre for Political Leadership from 2001 to 2005 and has worked in civic engagement and international affairs positions, including in political affairs in Canada's mission to the European Union and in the office of the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. She also is co-founder of the Barcelona International Public Policy Hub. She has a Bachelor of Laws from the University of Ottawa and received her NPA in 2001 from Princeton. Welcome to the show, Anami. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, as leader of the Green Party of Canada, you've promised to advance policies other parties haven't delivered on. Could you maybe start by telling me about some of those and which you're particularly passionate about? Well, you know, this is such an extraordinary time. I have to say when I decided to run for the Green Party, uh, we weren't in a pandemic yet, and the pandemic has changed everything. And so my, I would say my core, core values and priorities haven't changed, but certainly the way the, the issues, you know, the day-to-day issues that I'm talking about certainly have. Uh, in terms of those core values and priorities, I, I wanted to join the Green Party. I, I wanted to run for it and to lead it because I really believe in the power of collective change. I really believe that, you know, the most significant positive change that has ever happened in human history has happened collectively. And so that's a really good reason to be part of a political party. And then for me, uh, at this moment in time, I felt that I could contribute something leading a party. I really thought that my mix of experience, including, of course, my experience as a uh, Uh, someone having graduated from uh, the School of International Public Affairs at Princeton and that great set of skills would equip me to handle whatever challenges came my way, whatever the policy themes were of the day. Uh, And it definitely has. You know, I've been able to pivot uh, really quickly to the pandemic and the issues that is raised because I had that great toolbox of skills. So yes, you know, those, you know, kind of being in the, the right place at the right moment to And uh, this just felt like the right moment to get involved politically and try to contribute something to politics in Canada. Let's let's unpack that a little bit, because we are spending time on this podcast talking about leadership and how leadership is developed. And I'm sort of curious, in what ways do you think Princeton helped you with that? In what ways did, you know, your career path lead you in this direction? And what are the qualities you think make for a good leader? You know, being an, an alumni of the master's program of SPIA is just, I guess it helps make you a bit fearless. It just gave me this incredible set of skills 
that that gave me the confidence to t- and has given me the confidence to take uh, risks throughout my entire uh, professional life. I really felt uh, that I could pivot many, many times in my career. I've worked in the civil service. I've worked in uh, civil society. I've worked for NGOs. I've worked in multilaterals. I've been a social entrepreneur. Uh, and all of these things were because of the the toolbox of skills that I acquired during my two years at Princeton. And so I'm very grateful for that. And I know that that's not given to many people. And I'm pretty sure that this is what the what the faculty hopes for when they train us that, you know, we will go on to lead in whatever we do, and that we will feel like we have all of the building blocks that we need uh, to to uh, be effective leaders. And so what makes a great leader? It's an excellent question. And it's one I've been thinking about a lot in the last little while, because we're looking right now to recruit uh, very, very strong leaders, community leaders in particular, to run for us. I think it's someone who does have a little touch of fearlessness, someone who Uh, is really proactive about getting things done, someone that's able to spot the needs uh, of their community and their neighbors and and just roll up their sleeves and and get uh, get going uh, and get to work uh, without a lot of guidance. Uh, Those are some of the elements of of leadership. And, and, you know, sometimes we don't recognize or celebrate them enough when we see them. Uh, But uh, I certainly do. and, And those are the kind of people that I think we need in politics. I love that. And one of your peers, another alum I had interviewed, had said that you don't have to be in a leadership role to lead. And that really stuck with me. That's right. That's right. You know, there there are lots of people that without them and without that maybe unsung role that they're participating in or that they're guiding, uh, the whole thing falls apart like a house of cards. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, many of the people, for instance, who helped me to to win the leadership of the Green Party of Canada they they're never going to get the recognition they deserve for for what they did and what they did was decide to dedicate months of their lives to electing a black woman to a role that a, a black person had never been elected to in Canada and without their leadership i would not be here i definitely would not have won and so those people are leaders and i try to say that very often that i see i see them i see that leadership and uh, i value it as well you know for those listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the green party in canada could you tell us a little bit more about their priorities objectives certainly the green party is part of the global green movement of green parties and so uh, green parties wherever you find them around the world at whatever level you find them we have uh, core values that we all share, uh, and I won't list them all, but you know, amongst them are a respect for diversity, uh, nonviolence, of course, a respect for the natural world as well. Those things are you know, participatory democracy. Uh, so wherever you go in the world, uh, when you hear the label Green Party, it means something similar. It means that we have these, these core values. And so the Green Party in Canada, as, as in many countries, but particularly in Canada, is really well known for its environmental policies and, and particularly these days its policies around the climate emergency and uh, helping to us to avoid runaway global warming. But we're also known more and more for our social policies as well. We, we consider ourselves to be the most progressive party in, in federal politics, and we're very much focused on social justice and a complete social safety net as well. 
So at the moment, we're talking mostly about how do we complete our social safety net after the pandemic so that everyone can live in dignity from the first day to the last day? How do we make sure that we launch a a post-pandemic green recovery? And how do we ensure that we are continuously working towards a truly just society? That's really helpful. Thank you. You mentioned before sort of that you're you've pivoted in your career. And I want to go a little further back because you've had a long career in public policy with interest even stemming in your childhood. Uh, I'm just sort of curious, can you sort of briefly walk us through your path and then maybe get into what you learned along the way? Yeah, it's very, it was a very circuitous kind of windy road. Uh, my mom definitely didn't see the, the end, the end <laughs> along the way. There's a lot of that. There was a lot of what, what? <laughs> right. Um, but as I said, being, being a, a Princeton alum and being an alum of, of our faculty does give you confidence. It does give you a bit of, of that fearlessness that you need to decide to do something completely different. Uh, so definitely, as you said, my interest in public policy is something that, that stems all the way back to my childhood. My mom was an educator and, uh, you know, a union member. And so I, I was definitely exposed to policy and politics early on. And after my, my, my law studies and, and my Princeton studies, I knew that I wanted to always find a way to be engaged in policy. Uh, and so whether that was founding the first, first organization that, that really was trying to delve deeply into understanding and addressing underrepresentation amongst equity-seeking groups and politics here. And I was very fortunate to have funding from the American Equine Green Foundation for that, or whether it was working at the International Criminal Court or founding a social innovation hub in, in Barcelona for global NGOs working on the biggest global challenges you know, all of this, I would say still the, the, the unifying theme is that it was public service and it was trying to address the, the pressing issues of the day with that kind of toolbox of skills that I had acquired over the years. So I want to talk a little bit about decision-making. I mean, you mentioned that the Green Party Party is typically one of the more progressive parties, which I would imagine, you know, people would butt up against that other parties. So what advice or strategies would you give to people who need to forge a consensus on something? Hope for the best. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's, you know, it, you do have to enter. It's a great question. And you do have to enter those kind of situations with a very, very um, big dollop of humility uh, because it is, it is not a given regardless of your skill, regardless of your experience, that you're going to be able to forge that consensus. It requires such a, a unique mix of things. I mean, there's, there's, there are no two situations that are exactly comparable. My, my, uh, my partner of many years is a, an international human rights lawyer, and he is involved in peace negotiations all over the world and, and uh, helping to kind of forge those consensus uh, to help um, societies transition away from civil war or away from authoritarian regimes. And uh, so I think I have a, a close-up day-to-day bird's-eye view of what it takes to forge consensus. So in addition to the humility, I would say that listening, you know, just the very basic things, listening is very important. 
you really need to understand as best as you can the situation from the perspective of the other stakeholders. Uh, and one of the things that I've been pushing for a lot and will continue to talk about the importance of is ensuring that you're actually forging a consensus with the right people. Because so often in policy in particular, the people who are most impacted by a decision aren't even in the room when those decisions are taken. And then, you know, they're being, those decisions are being sold to them or pitched to them retroactively. And that makes it much, much harder to find consensus. And we see that, you know, we see that playing out in big and small ways all the time. So that just having the right actors in the room is already a really great start. That's so true. And I'm thinking you've listed so many policy issues in this conversation so far between COVID and climate change. Are there other policy issues that you think are really important to tackle right now? This is just a critical global crossroads. We have so many big and in some ways unprecedented issues uh, converging at the same moment. And I know for some people that is very frightening, while for other people it's, it's exhilarating. It really just depends on who you are. But there is no doubt that we really are at a, a very unusual moment in, in human history. You know, we have the pandemic and we have the, you know, we have the likelihood of, of future pandemics. Uh, we have uh, the the warm our warming planet and and our need to urgently address the climate emergency. We have the opportunity to have a green recovery, which means that we could also be looking at globally and entri- entire um, structural change to our economic system. We also have the changing nature of work and the future of work uh, that has been caused by automation and artificial intelligence and has only accelerated during the pandemic. So those are pretty big, unprecedented things. And, and so we who have decided that we want to try to help figure those out or help, as you said, to you know, build the consensus around where we're headed to and how we're going to tackle those, we have a lot of work cut out for us, absolutely. I'm hoping that what the pandemic has done, at least as the, as the good thing that can come out of all of this tragedy, It's that it's helped to focus our minds on what is important and the things that we value, uh, that it's it's allowed us to reprioritize and uh, and to really commit to taking care of one another and the natural world, and that we will take that spirit into uh, all of the decisions we have to make about where we're headed to, whether it's in our own countries or, or as an international community. Yeah, and I do think we're seeing a lot of energy from young and emerging leaders in this area. And and I want to ask you, you know, what advice would you give to those people? What would you even say to yourself, uh, you know, as you were leaving the MPA program? You know, what advice would you have for our students who are graduating this year and maybe even prospective students thinking about coming to Princeton? Well, first, if you're thinking of coming to Princeton and you have the opportunity to do it, absolutely do it. It is one of the best decisions I ever made. Never mind, you know, that my son was born uh, while I was a student there. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. He was born between my first and second year in the summer between the two. Wow. Yeah. And before you asked, yes, he was planned. This was the kind of, you know, because because it's a fair question. (laughs) It was actually my, 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 my my, um, partner and I, and he was a student at Columbia at the time he was doing his master's in law. So we weren't even in the same city, but there was just something about being, as wow. I said, being at Princeton that makes you feel fearless. 
And we thought, of course, we don't have any money and we're both students, but why not? Uh, <laughs> and so, so he was born there. So that's definitely a permanent gift that I take away. And he spent Aww. his first year on campus and often coming into classes with me, uh, which I don't know if anyone has repeated that since, but uh, you can at least say that there was one baby that was brought up <laughs> by the students uh, in our faculty. the I guess he was born in 2000, so the year 2000. Yeah, yeah, so that was a gift. And, and I would say, so I would say to people, this is just a gift that keeps on giving. So if you have the opportunity to do this, you should do it. Uh, Princeton invests so much in students. There's so much encouragement for students to pursue their ideas, to investigate the, the policy issues that they're passionate about to construct the the um, the scaffolding that can support all kinds of different career paths over the years. So I would definitely recommend that they do that. And then my message is once you've done that degree, give Princeton a good return on its investment <laughs> by making sure that you go out there and in whatever way you think is best, whatever way you think most fits your your talents, you go and make a difference. Because this is definitely a moment for people to step up. It's a moment for those who have had the opportunity to really be prepared with the skills that, that we're going to need to come up with the innovative solutions to these, these big, you know, these not just challenges, but also opportunities. Uh, this is the moment. This is absolutely the moment uh, you are needed. Your talent and your, your passion is needed. And so go forth and, and, you know, in your big and small ways, demonstrate leadership. And also, I hope that you will share your, your leadership and your skills as well. It's so important for every Princeton grad to know that there is thousands of people who will never have that special experience. Find a way to, to share what you've learned with them. That's so well put. And I, I have one follow-up to it, and I might even be asking this a little for myself, but how, how do you become a fearless person? What's the secret recipe for that? For those who think, I want to say something, I want to do something, but I don't know how to do that. What would you tell that person? Yeah, you know, I don't, I guess this is one of these nature <laughs> nurture things. It's, mm, it's, it's, yes. it's got to be a mix. And then part of it is just luck. I, I have been uh, for since, since uh, my early 20s, I've been uh, with um, a partner who uh, encourages me and I encourage him. And so, you know, we, we just got, the, got into the habit right from the beginning, pretty much, of trying to do the work that was meaningful to us, trying to live our lives in a way that was meaningful to us, even if it didn't follow the prescribed script of what lawyers should do or what you know Ivy League grads should do, we really try to uh, to live our lives on our own terms. And I guess the more and more you do that, the the you know you get the reward, and the reward it's it's like a, a positive feedback loop. And so that was definitely our case. I mean, we have never regretted any of those chances we took. You know, leaving our stable law jobs to go back to school or deciding to pick up everything and, and move with our family to Europe, leaving stable jobs to go and, and create our own uh, organizations. We've never regretted that. And I think that once you do it and it works out, you're willing to do it again and again. And so that's basically been our story. So I would say to most people that I think if you're following your path as you want to lay it out for yourself, you're likely to find that you're happy. And I know there's an expression, something, I think some this expression, something like it's better to be climbing beyond the first rung of a ladder you want to climb than, you know, at the top rung of a ladder you didn't even want to be on. 
something mm. like that. And it's yeah. kind of like that. It's kind of, it's kind of like that. So taking risks has been good to me and I highly recommend it. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. And I'm sure there are a lot of people listening thinking, I just needed to hear that. Well, we are just about out of time. I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Is there anything else you'd want to add before we wrap up today? Go Tigers. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Love it. Well, thanks yeah. so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. You've been listening to Changemakers, a podcast produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. This show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Rose Huber. Listen and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.